0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You
1: don't have to be another face in the
0: crowd. And we are live. Welcome, folks, to episode 3397 of the Survival Podcast. I'm going to have Our special guest on in just a moment, Jay Carmichael, and we're going to be talking to him about something he calls shouldering the weight, basically giving back and making service part of your life. This is a topic we have. We've talked to other people that do stuff like this. I don't know if we ever really dug into it as an independent standalone subject. I think it's a it's a really important subject. There's a lot of things out there that need doing. And if we don't set the example, you know, we can end up in a place just because we're all going to be old and other things can happen where we're relying on our youth to, uh, to help us out. If we haven't set that example, they're probably not going to do it. That's just one of the self-serving reasons that you might want to get involved with something like this. It's also incredibly rewarding, leads you to meet a lot of really amazing people, and uh, it just brings a lot into your life. So we'll have Jay on in just a moment. To talk about that. Before we do, I want to go ahead and remind you about our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is John Pugliano with the Wealth Steading Podcast. Guys, John is one of us. Yes, he is a multi millionaire money manager, but he's also a prepper. He's a ham radio operator. He's a gardener. He's a homesteader. He's all of it. And he's been part of our community since about 2010 when I first met him at a prepper convention in Salt Lake City, Utah, when he came up to me and said, Jack, I'm going to start a business as a financial advisor. And I know how you feel about that, but I'm going to handle things differently. And it was the beginning of a friendship uh, that's now more than a decade old. He's a great community member, and he has a podcast. His podcast is called The Wealth Studding Podcast, where you can learn to grow your wealth like you grow a garden. So check him out today and realize you are, again, dealing with a guy that is definitely part of the community and one of us, one of us. Next up today, K9 Academy. you guys want to check out K9 Academy, run by Joel Riles. He's been on the show quite a few times. K9 Academy, you know, kind of the tagline there is "Train your dog." Well, let me give you a secret. It's really about training you. If you ask any professional dog trainer what the most difficult species he works with is, he won't say it's like a Shih Tzu or a Husky or whatever. He'll say a human. Because humans are the ones who really need the training. With Canine Academy, you can get the training to make your dog the perfect homestead dog and member of your family, a dog that protects your property but doesn't harm it. Uh, And it's going to all start out with the core obedience basics. You can take that course. You can also take a monthly course that keeps getting added to over time. There's an annual program. There's a club membership and an advanced club membership. Whatever you're looking for, we have it all. I recommend everybody at least take the basics course. Anything you do with your dog is going to come down to core basics. And even if you think you got that down, you probably don't. Let a guy who's been doing this his whole life, basically, teach you how to train your dog. With that, let's go ahead and get our special guest on the show. Again, our special guest today is Jay Carl Michael, and he is going by a stage named, uh for his own reasons, whatever they may be. Jay, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Hey, Jack. How's it going? It's great to be here.
0: It's good, man. Um, You just got a little wonky on audio there, so hopefully that doesn't stay that way. Okay. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're echoey. I don't know what happened. It was fine when we tested it. Um, We'll go forward. Folks, let us know if you're having problems in the live chat. Uh, Let's start out, Jay. Uh, Can you talk about your background? I know that your background is actually in music, and though that's not what we're really here to talk about today. How did you get into that? And uh, what was it like being a a professional musician?
1: Yeah, so I uh, started playing music when I was about 10 years old. Um, Picked up the guitar first and then mandolin when I was about 15 or 16. Um, Ended up going to Berklee College of Music for a couple of years. Um, Studied mandolin and songwriting and a little bit of studio stuff while I was out there and um, then kind of hit a point where it was like, my goodness, this school is very, very expensive and I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with a music degree when I actually get out. Um, And so I I ended up actually on the advice of one of my instructors. He was just like, look, if what you want to do is write songs, uh, you can already write songs. Um, just go do that and, and just be a songwriter. Like you don't need to be here in order to do that. And so I ended up leaving. I, uh, got, well, I, I recorded a couple of independent albums and went out on the road with some kind of country punk, alternative punk rock bands that, that were sort of, sort of crossing the line between country and punk a little bit. Um, got got to share the stage with guys like Lucero and Tumble Down and um, actually was opened up a show one time for Turnpike Troubadours before they blew up. Um, and so did that for a number of years, basically from the time I was 17 to the time I was 27. Um, and then when I was 27, my first kid was born, and I was just kind of like, oh, my gosh, I need to get – something of an adult job um because music as much as i love it was never something that did a very great job of paying the bills so um and i had also you know i i grew up in a military family and so service was always something that was sort of important to me and so it was kind of in the back of my mind it was like well maybe i should do something along those lines at some point Um, and that's not what I ended up doing, but, um, yeah, so basically been a musician my entire life and it's still a big part of what I do. And, and I'm doing more of that now. I took about 10 years and did some other things and now I'm doing some more music, but.
0: Is that mainly what drew you away from music is needing to, provide
1: for a family and get a real job, you know,
0: cut your haircut and yeah. get a real job. You know? Yeah.
1: I mean, it, yeah, to a degree it, it was, it was, you know, when my, so when my dad was uh, when him and my mom first got together and my mom was pregnant with my oldest sister, um, he went and signed up for the national guard. And um, yeah. the funny story is my, my mom wasn't very happy about it. And she actually ended up punching him and gave him a shiner. And so his, his camp picture is, is him with a nice shiner. Um, but, uh, so yeah, when, when, when I had my daughter, um, it was, it was just kind of like, yeah, I need to figure out how to go be an adult. And so I went and, signed up for Wilderness EMT school and started there. And that, that eventually took me into some other things.
0: I mean, you ended up in like emergency services and public safety. Is that kind of that entry point? And what was Yeah.
1: That? Yeah. So, um, I started out, I went to remote medical international for EMT school and then went and worked for an ambulance company over on the Olympic peninsula and it was a, it, over in Washington State. And um, it was a very, very busy 911 system. And on top of doing the 911s, we were we were doing interfacility facility transports and mental health transports. And really, we were transporting people all over the state. Um, you know, some days we'd be going from, you know, Forks, Washington, all the way down to Portland, and then getting back and running 911 calls all night. So um, that was that was sort of the, the place where I started out. And then I went from there into doing some wildland fire. And then a few years later moved back to where I was born in Idaho and, um, worked for the corrections department here for a little while. And, um, ultimately decided that that wasn't for me. I always kind of tell people I, I don't really recommend it as a job or a housing unit. Um, if, if you can stay away from prison, it's probably going to be better for your mental health. But uh, I, I did do that for a little while as well. So,
0: um, Yeah, you were, from what I read in your notes, you were mainly transporting prisoners or something like that. I, I would imagine that, like, it's a job that needs doing all of the stuff in a prison. But, man, you talk about a service-oriented job. I mean, it, it, it's probably not... The best environment to be in, even if you're on the other side of things like I have a very good family friend and he worked as a guard uh, in Tarrant County. But he only did that for a couple of years because he was trying to get into the sheriff's department as a deputy. Right. Right. It was like a pathway to him. And he's like, I would never do that again.
1: Right. Yeah. No. And and a lot of people do use it as a stepping stone. And I kind of used it. I, I was interested in law enforcement. Um, but when I got in there, you know, to like in one of my training days, one day I, I, I ended up kneeling down and I I was actually complimented by the sergeant who was doing the training. He was, he was just like, you know, you, you did a really good job of showing empathy there, but you, at, at the same time, if you had been attacked, you, you were kneeling down and you were in a bad situation for that. Yeah. And, and it was just like, man, you know all of the EMS stuff that I already had, um, I think sort of it, it lent me more towards a little bit of empathy and like wanting to help situations. Um, and, and that may have been a little bit of a, of a detriment to some of my stuff in, it, you know, not that, not that my situational awareness is bad, but it, it just, it, it was one of those things. And, you know, in the, there were times in the prison system where I would deal with, you know, I, sometimes some of the bigger problems that I saw came from the officers more than the inmates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd have somebody who's dealing with a medical problem and it's not necessarily an emergency, but it's like somebody's breaking out in hives, for example, and. Which can quickly they, become an emergency. Which can quickly become an emergency. Very exactly. And. And there were officers who would just be like, no, this guy's full of crap and let's just ignore it and, and hope that he goes away. And, you know, I was the guy getting on the phone with medical control and saying, hey, um, can we get somebody over here and at least give him some Benadryl? And obviously the doctors in all of those situations were like, yeah, absolutely. We'll be down right away. But, um, yeah, elements of that environment and just like not like some folks just are so jaded in that system that sometimes they don't necessarily want to do their jobs the way that they should. And, um, that's as a musician and as an artist, um, stuff like that is like pretty hard to just like constantly be around. So.
0: Yeah. Because um, I mean, I've talked to people, like I said, that have done the job of being a guard and they'll tell you for every one guy that really, you know, probably doesn't even belong in there and he's harmless and he's got compassion and he's helpful and Mm -hmm. he's just trying to get through his time. There's two that are chameleons. Oh yeah. Act that way. Yeah. And they're, they're looking to set up a vulnerability, whether it's in a guard, another staff member, another inmate, like that is an MO. And so, you know, probably after three or four times of ending up in a bad situation, those guys do get really jaded and whether you like it or not, you should be able to understand it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you know, when I say I don't really recommend it as a job, I mean, I will say my hat goes off to the people who do it. I mean, there, there are, there are good folks that work in those systems and there you can make a good career out of it. Um, it just it, it takes a very special individual to be able to do it and and also be um, happy with their life and not just be kind of a miserable SOB. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of jobs like that that people do that. You're grateful somebody does it, but it's not necessarily something that mo- yeah, it takes a special person, I think, is the way to put it. Like another yeah. totally separate situation, but like people that do hospice work. You no, know, oh, yeah. every single person that you work with will soon die. Yeah. And that's got to, I mean, God bless the person that does it, but I don't know that I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, EMT schools. So like there's a lot of people, they go to EMT school in community college. When I was in high school, they actually taught things that were useful and there was even an EMT course you could take as a junior and senior in high school. And you, they mm-hmm. even did ride, ride along to stuff like that. So I've known people that have done it. Um, but you mentioned wilderness EMT school. I got to think that's a little different than what you would take at your local community college.
1: Yeah, so it, it's uh, the program that I went through was through Remote Medical International. And that was a four week sort of almost boot camp setting, except, you know, we're not having to get up at 5 a.m. and do PT every day. But um, definitely a drinking from a fire hose type situation. And um, we were we so we would take you through all of the basics of your EMT basic. And then on top of that, we did a certification called Medical Person in Charge, which is a U.S. Coast Guard certification that allows you to do things like IV therapy. And um, oh, gosh, the words king airways which is kind of like tubing somebody but it's not quite the way the paramedics would do it um it's a different kind of tool but um so we we went through those sorts of things and then we also did some wilderness survival type stuff and rope rescue training and all all of our scenarios were sort of outdoor based scenarios so we would do you know, a mass casualty type scenario where it's like we're outside in the woods in the dark and it's simulating that like there was an airplane crash in a wilderness area or something along those lines. And so, um, a little bit different, um, get still gets you all the basics, but it goes into some other things that I was, you know, and I was also kind of, you know, as a, as a musician, I have something of an entrepreneurial spirit. So I I was sort of interested in elements of the outdoor industry too. And so that was part of what drew me to that as well. And then also wildland fire, just in wildland fire, medical emergencies, you're, you're dealing with more austere environments. So.
0: Yeah, definitely. And did you, once you had that certification, did you work in that specific niche for very long? Because I know you eventually moved to more of a typical EMS situation.
1: Yeah. So I a lot of folks end up um, getting their wilderness EMT. And a lot of folks that I've met who sort of go into the outdoor world don't end up using their medical training a lot and so i kind of looked at it and said well i want to put some of the medical stuff into some actual practice and the best way to do that was to it was to just go and work on an ambulance um and so i i actually went from wilderness emt school to getting my fire certificate and then i had two job opportunities and one was going to be with a wildland crew but my son was about to be born and so that was gonna it it didn't seem like a good idea because i wanted to be around when he was born and, and the ambulance company offered me a job at the same time and they were like well yeah whenever your wife goes into labor we'll cut you loose and you can go to the hospital and so i i ended up going straight to um working on an ambulance and and didn't do much of the uh remote stuff until later when I was working with a hunting outfit over in, or a wing shooting outfit, I should say over in the Teton area here in Idaho. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you have any like
0: stories about that? I mean, one of my friends, my God, it was my bee mentor until I gave up bees is a paramedic and he's told Mm -hmm. me pretty crazy shit that's gone down on uh, some of the calls. It's, it's a, you know, they used to have a tagline for the Army. It's not just a job. It was that the Navy. One of them was, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. Right. It, it sounds to me like working EMS is like that tagline maybe should go there.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I So first, one of the things that I liked about it and still like about it is that it's you, every day is different you know one day you could be going on a call where somebody's trapped underneath a car another day you could be going on a call where you're doing CPR and other days you may not go on hardly any calls at all right it, it so you you get to work and not every day is going to be the same and it's it to the point where it's almost a cliche when people in the fire service and the AMS service talk about it it's just like every day is different um in terms of uh stories um when when i worked for the ambulance company over in washington state we did I, i mentioned we did a lot of mental health transports we had a guy who he either had a concussion or he was showing early signs of schizophrenia and um we got on scene and Law enforcement was very concerned about this guy, but not concerned enough that they wanted to transport him. Um, And we ran into that a lot where it was like, well, maybe this is something that the sheriff department should just take over. But oftentimes they would like half the time they would be like, yeah, we'll follow you to the hospital, but we don't want to take the patient. Right. So we get this guy in the back of the rig and he's, uh, He's he's just behaving really weird like he had he had tried to attack somebody and um, but and we didn't know what was going on like I he had apparently been hit in the head with a baseball bat the week before and but he was also right on this edge of the line where like schizophrenia signs start to show and, and he had apparently had some of this odd behavior for a while and he was he was talking about all sorts of crazy like I mean. And I'm something of a conspiracy theorist sometimes. And he would like what he was saying was like way out there, even for me. Right. So I'm I'm just like, something is weird. And um, he gets in the back of the rig and the cops hadn't patted him down. Turns out that he had a knife and a lighter on him in the back of the rig. And so it's just like, OK, well, let's get rid of these. Right. And he didn't want to sit on the stretcher. And the cops were like, no, he's got to sit on the stretcher. And I'm like, actually, he doesn't. He can he can just sit in the chair if he'd rather do that. Like, let's try and make him comfortable and, and not turn this into a situation that needs to get weird. Anyway, so I kind of get him calmed down. And um, we're going to leave. Like, the second that the ambulance is pulling out of the driveway, he just kind of gives me this ominous look. And he's like... I'm I'm actually I've got my iPad out. I'm about to start writing my report and he gives me this look and he's like, the rules are about to change. And I'm just like, oh, (laughs) I have no idea what you mean by that. And um, so I set my iPad down. I'm like, I'm going to do my report later uh, because this guy could could be losing it and maybe he's going to try and pull something in route. And luckily he didn't, he just went into more crazy conspiracy talk the rest of the way. But it was, it was just one of those situations where it's just like, okay, I've, I've got to absolutely be maintaining my situational awareness. Um, and, uh, yeah, later when, you know, again, I was trying to give him some level of autonomy, tried to let him sign for himself rather than having to, charge nurse signed for him at the er and when i did that he tried to steal the ipad from me and um we had to get security involved in order to get that back and and so you know and i mean it's not that crazy of a story but the the thing the thing with ems you know there's there's you, you go through the training and there's always a lot of talk about scene safety right and and people will be like that, you know, you get onto a scene, you got to make sure there's no fire, no wire, no gas, no glass, no guns. Right. And. I was I, I was always sort of like we would get on into our training scenarios and people would say. OK, you got to check off and say scene is safe. And I was always just like the scene's never safe. You can never guarantee that the scene is safe, like. There could be a gun in a drawer that you don't know about. There could be. There's always something that could be going on that you're unaware of. And, um, you know, another story. This is actually kind of recent, but um, we were there. Had been a house fire, and and part of the reason I use a stage name is because I do like to talk about some of these things, but I also have to be careful about privacy and, and I, I want to be careful about um, the service that I work for and not to be sharing too much. But there had been a relatively major house fire in our area that had spread to multiple buildings and everybody had been working for the last eight hours or so putting that out. We get back to the station and I'm unloading my truck with some gear that I had taken over there. and literally walking out of the bushes next to the station this woman just comes up to me and she's crying and she looks like she's been beat up and she's like somebody's going to kill my baby and i'm sitting there and i'm just like wait what's going on it's it, it's it's just like we just went from a fire and everybody's just like ready to go home and here we've got this woman that just shows up out of nowhere saying that somebody's about to harm her child, right? And so, you know, at that point I take her to our chief and um I go to my truck and get my nine millimeter out because I'm not entirely sure where this guy is or what's going on. And our uh our chief actually asks one of the captains, he's like, Hey, are you armed? And I turn to the chief, I'm like, he may not be, but I am. Um And so we ended up locking the fire station down for like four hours waiting for law enforcement because we live where I live now is a very rural area and the sheriff deputies can be, you know, an hour to 45 minutes or so away at any given time. And so it took a long time for them to get there. And then they didn't, the, the thing that actually kind of kills me about this situation and we may talk more about this later in terms of like lessons, but um, the, the sheriff never ended up making contact with the subject. Um, the baby was in the house and they said, well, we saw him giving it a bottle. And so we decided that there was no threat. Well, the woman had been battered. And when she, when I was interviewing her, it seemed like something was definitely wrong. And, and to my mind, somebody should have at least been knocking on the door and seeing what the heck was going on. Um, but they never even ended up making contact with the guy. And that guy is actually now awaiting trial for allegedly having killed somebody else. So, um, you know, and that's a rural town here in Idaho. Um, so Anyway, those, those, those are a couple of stories. I mean, I've had, you know, I've been on calls where people have made it. I've been on calls where people haven't made it. We've, you know, we've got a lot of river rafting up here. We lose people in the river. Seems like every single year we lose a few people who are kayaking or paddleboarding or something along those lines. And it's just like, you know, one minute they're there having a nice Saturday afternoon and the next minute they're gone. and, uh, yeah, so, um, we've, you know, and they, at some point we can maybe talk a little bit about some COVID stuff too, but we are, uh, we ended up losing one of our mentors to COVID during kind of the height of it in 2021. And if you want to talk about masks at all, I'll tell you, this guy used, all of the precautions he took 45 minutes to decontaminate after every single COVID call. He did everything according to the book and it still ended up being that yeah. he caught it and passed away. So
0: let's not go too deep into that. I have a habit of having videos taken down and getting strikes and Sure, yeah, for uh, content in that realm. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: It, it just, it's the YouTube thing. I mean, I have to say this at this point for, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the podcast platforms. I Mm -hmm. have never, no matter how deep down the rabbit hole I went with any subject, not just COVID, ever had a podcast removed from one of those platforms. I have had multiple. I've never even had one taken off Facebook. Um, Mm -hmm. Not a podcast one anyway, but I've sure had them happen on YouTube. And and I've had YouTube freaking pull up a podcast that was a year and a half old. And give right. me a strike for it and take it down and, and deny me the ability to communicate on YouTube for two weeks. And the video yeah. is a year and a half old. So let's, it ain't that I don't yeah. care. It's just that. No, no, no. Talk about it. Yeah. Without, you know, digging into it. But yeah, I agree. I mean, that stuff never worked no matter what they said. It's a right. respiratory illness. You have enough medical background to know that. I'd kind of like to talk about some of the important lessons the e-learned working for EMS, fire, corrections, et cetera, for preppers, because we have a mm-hmm. primarily of, at least at some level preppers. And I think it, there's probably a lot with just preparedness in general, but there's also probably kind of a look behind the scenes of what can and does go wrong. Right. Um, I mean,
1: I I would say that, I mean, and I've heard you talk about this on a few of your shows. I mean, I've I've been a longtime listener, um, but I didn't quite realize exactly how true it was until I had been doing some of this for a few years. Um, Your your emergency response systems in I I don't care what county it is that you live in um, are not are likely not as robust as you may think that they are. Um It does not take a whole heck of a lot for a system to become overwhelmed. Uh, the system that I worked at in Washington state was very robust. They had a lot of medics. We had a lot of EMTs and there were still numerous times where it was like, oh, wow, we don't have a paramedic available in this county. Like at all, right? And, it, and,
0: and uh, it, because you really take that in a paramedic.
1: Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. A single
0: paramedic, singular.
1: Right. Yeah. Um. Let alone multiple. And so it, it really does not take a whole heck of a lot to just overwhelm some of these systems. And it, that that's sort of the thing that really, you know, like I've always got a med kit in my truck. I've always got some things on me and handy, um, for that reason. Um, and, and I know that a lot of people in the prepping community kind of understand this and take notions of that to heart, but there's there, I, I feel like even in, in prepper communities or even in, in some of these States like red States, um, where you've got a lot more people who, In their minds, they're a little bit more self-sufficient and more prepared for if things go wrong. There's still sort of a level of complacency of like, well, you know, but an active shooter situation isn't necessarily going to happen here. Right. And it's like, but then something happens in Uvalde, Texas, and the whole thing goes totally sideways. Right. And it's like, no, I mean, really, this sort of stuff can happen anywhere and and if one thing like that happens you've got one sort of mass casualty incident all of your resources are going to be probably there which means if something else happens you've got to pile up on the highway you're gonna be lucky if you've got half of the resources that are able to divert and go over there and if they're not able to do that then they're going to be coming from the next county over right and and that response time is going to be slow. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And
0: I think like one of the things people need to get in their head, too, is, well, you know, we're not going to have a mass shooting here or something. OK, fine. You know, let's say you don't. You probably mm-hmm. won't. OK. It right. doesn't matter why you have a severed artery. Right. Or exactly what you care about or someone you just see on the side of the road has a severed artery. Um, right. I had one guy ride in about using quick clot for someone mm-hmm. that was dumpster diving and the thing came down and I mean he probably head injury usually severe or superficial. But it's yeah. it, it is the case that something can go wrong. Huge gash in his head bleeding profusely. Um because when people say they're prepared, I'm like, do you have a way to deal with severe bleeds on right, you right now? Right. Then you're not right.
1: prepared. Right. You're yeah, not absolutely absolutely I
0: mean, it's one of the number one causes of death outside of like disease and stuff is you know Exsanguination bleeding to death.
1: Yeah. Well, and and one one thing along those lines too is, I mean, and you talk about it a lot, and a lot of people in this community talk about it, but just training, um, you know. And I don't care if it's going and doing one of Tim Kennedy's courses, or yeah, you know, I I would say do something more than basic first aid. Um, if if I was going to recommend something, I would say do something like wilderness first responder as like a minimum, which is a, a fairly easy course to get through um, or wilderness first aid um, because those courses are different from your, your basic first aid classes in that it's giving you tools and sort of a mindset for if things go wrong and you don't have resources readily available. So you don't necessarily have the perfect med kit or or the biggest med kit right whereas a first aid course it, it, or even an emt course there's this assumption that you have a fair amount of equipment with you but when you're dealing with an emergency wilderness environment um you may not necessarily have all of those tools so like if if you're going to get training um that that's actually a place that I would, I would recommend going is doing something in the wilderness first aid or wilderness first responder lines.
0: Yeah. Because you just don't always have what you need. and Sometimes you right. know how to improvise. Like would I rather have a, a, a proper tourniquet or a torn piece of material off a pair of jeans? Well, I'd rather have a proper right. tourniquet, but I'd rather right. a dude or myself not bleed to death. Right. right. That, that's yeah. number two. Right. Like use the best tool for the job and then two, keep the person from dying. Right. right? Like, yeah. You know, and I, I think there is also something to peeling back that layer of false faith, I guess is the word for it. This belief. Yeah. that Well, I'll dial nine one one. And yeah. And even if everything goes perfect. I mean around here a good 911 response time to somebody's at your front door is between 9 and 20 minutes. That's if everything right. goes right, you know. If it's something for the sheriff and he's down the road, he might be here in 30 seconds, right? The deputies are mm-hmm. kind of patrolling, but I mean we had like a fire happen because some dumbasses a few years ago were driving down the road shooting Roman candles out of a window in the middle of a drought on 4th of July weekend. Well, it just so happened that my nephew was leaving our place as this happened, and had we not, like, started stringing garden hoses together and shit, my neighbor's whole freaking field and probably house would have burned down, right? Right. So, we're, like, blocking traffic and stretching the hose across the street and pulling it out. When the fire department got there, we kind of did the math and said, that blaze would be at least to their door. Right. By the time... So... That's an example of they were out and about because this was going on. That was mm-hmm. probably as fast as you're going to see a fire truck where I live. Mm-hmm. And it was not fast enough had we not been prepared to do something about it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're, you know, you, you've you got places in the West, especially where you're kind of in what we call the wildland urban interface and um there's y- y- it it can take no time for a grass fire to blow up and if if the wind conditions are right and move towards a house and y- if if you're not at least somewhat mentally prepared to try and do something about it and if you're not thinking about things like fire breaks on your property and defensible space and and that sort of stuff, then, and, and yeah, I mean, that, that would be another thing is like, in in terms of lessons is, you know, I live up in the mountains, not everybody does, but where I live, like, wildland stuff is definitely a potential issue. And so it's like, okay, we've got to make sure that we're tending to our property in such a way that we have some land around the house that is free of fuel yeah. and is not going to just get burnt up and come real close to the house um doesn't necessarily mean that our house won't burn down things can still go wrong but um you know that that hopefully buys you some time right
0: so what what do you think members of our audience would gain By doing something in this realm of service, whether it's a career, whether it's a volunteer part time thing, like what does it do for the individual that's doing the work, that's doing the giving? Because you don't go into it to get rich, obviously. Right. right? But what I have found is when something's worthy of doing, you generally gain back more than you give if you look at it in the right context.
1: Um. First, I would say perspective. You know, um, my I I mentioned that I grew up in a military family. My grandfather was in the Air Force for like 30 years. He was in Korea and Vietnam. He was an older Vietnam vet. Some people have accused me of lying about that um, because of the time difference between those two wars. My father was in the National Guard for 25 years. Um, He retired as a first sergeant. and there's like, it, you know, every now and then, and and I feel like I've heard you say some things along these lines before where it's like, you know, we almost like it, it could almost be good if some of these things were mandatory, you know, and, and obviously the, the more libertarian anarchist mindset kind of reels at that. And is like, no, we don't want to make anything like that mandatory. But um, I think that, I think that the perspective is really important. I think that even just perspective on how government functions and what things that if if we're going to have government, if there's going to be this monster that we can't get rid of for whatever reason, like what are things that it should actually be doing and how can it do them best and if you haven't participated in it either through something like the military or fire service or law enforcement, you don't necessarily have that much of a working perspective on it. Right. Um, The, so like, I, yeah, I mean, I, I tell my kids sort of all the time, like I, in, in a lot of ways, I would kind of prefer if they didn't join the military, but I, I do think that doing something like working in an ER as an ER tech, or working on an ambulance, or spending a few years working in the prison system, or even just spending a few years volunteering for your community as a firefighter, um, gives you some perspective of just like the weight of the things that actually have to get done because people are going to die. People are going to get sick. And sometimes those people get sick. And if they had got to the hospital in a decent amount of time, they wouldn't have passed away, but because they didn't, they end up going, right? And so um there's uh there's just a lot of perspective to be gained from it. On top of that, yeah, I mean it can turn into a career. For me, it's you know, at, at the moment it's more of a part-time volunteer thing and less of a full-time thing. Um
0: Jay, real quick, just keep going. I'm gonna get up for a minute. I'm gonna make sure the pool man doesn't get eaten by a dog. So <laughs> shoulder the weight for the next thirty, forty seconds.
1: Yeah, crazy. okay. Copy that. Um yeah, the uh the perspective that you gain from doing something like this um is is tremendous. And I you know, I with my Family's background, I like, I have, I'm not sitting here saying that it's the same thing as having been into a war zone. It's not the same thing as the stuff that my dad had to do or my grandfather had to do or my brothers had to do. Um, but there are a lot of things, particularly here at home, that I think are relatively overlooked. Like we, we don't, we don't necessarily tend to value, um, things like the fire service you know where where i live our even our ems it, our tax dollars go toward the fire service but none of our tax dollars go towards ems and we actually pay for ems in our county with a golf tournament every year um and it's and there it, stuff like that is actually not terribly uncommon ems tends to be one of those things where, like, you call nine one one and you expect them to show up, but depending on where you live, um, that that service may not necessarily be around. And so, if especially if you're living in a rural area, it's good to have some perspective on it. And you know, at a minimum, if you know, if you're at an age where it's like, well, this is, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily put on an SCBA and go run into a burning building. One thing to consider too, is just like joining your fire auxiliary. Um, And if there is a fire in your County, especially if you're in a rural area, um, if there's a fire in your County, you know, those guys are going to be working their tails off for anywhere from four to 12 hours, depending on how bad the fire is. Right. And having some, food and some water brought to the scene by some folks who are just trying to help out um, is of tremendous value. So if you're not in a position where you can do something like volunteering, um, you you could volunteer in that way and just bring some food. So
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And then in all this, you ended up like, you're like me. You've done a whole shitload of things, right? Yeah. I think that's a good way to live. One of the professions you ended up in was you ended up being a professional gun dog handler. Yeah. Can, can you talk about how how do you go from all of this to like that, and and what does that entail? How does somebody where does somebody go to professional do, dog handler college?
1: Right. Um, I definitely didn't go to college for it. So I've I've been uh working with dogs sort of amateurly since I was a kid, I've always loved duck hunting and pheasant hunting and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, I, as a musician, I mentioned earlier, like I've got a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit and I was sitting there one day, like it had gotten done with a week worth of shifts. And I was just like, my goodness, like I'm so fried. Like I wonder if I could work for myself a little bit. And I had a couple of pretty good hunting dogs that I had trained myself. And I ended up seeing an ad on Facebook for a company that does European style wing shooting. And I sent them an email and just said, you know, I might be interested in working with you guys and went out and met them and showed them that my dogs could retrieve and basically spent the next three seasons um, sitting behind a bunch of people, paying a bunch of money to shoot pheasants and chucker while my dogs got to pick up the birds. Right. And so there, there was a team of about, six to eight of us every day and we'd have nine shooters. So it's, it's called driven shooting. So we'd have nine shooters out in front of us or eight shooters out in front of us and we'd be behind them and the birds are flying out over us in a canyon and everybody's taking these shots and I'm just sending my dogs on retrieves as they mark them. Um, and then, you know, we do that for, you know, starting at eight in the morning and get done at about six every night. And, um, it was, you know, it, it's funny because the, a few, a few months ago you had Joel Riles on and he was talking about following your passion. And it, it, it is something that like hunting has always been something that I'm passionate about and have always loved doing, but, there and and I run into this with music too like anytime you take something that you love and you turn it into your job there can be some elements of it that like elements of the fire might die a little bit sometimes um but yeah I did that for three seasons and a little bit this season as well so this this would be my fourth um and I'm sort of at a point with it now where I'm like man I kind of almost want to do more hunting for myself because it does take, it takes up a lot of your hunting season. You know, you're, you're doing it in September and October and that's, that's when you want to be chasing bucks and, and getting out after your own birds. Um, but I did at least manage to shoot a whitetail the other day and, um, it was, so it, it hasn't totally eaten into it, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a thing that I've done a little bit too. And the, the wilderness EMS stuff helped with that. I mean, every now and then we would have some, I I mean, we actually did have one person nearly get shot. She actually ended up only being hit with the wad, but she ended up with a concussion after being hit with a wad by a client. That's wild to
0: be hit hard enough with a wad and yet not by any shot. That's well, yeah. Crazy. Well,
1: part of it is they you use that
0: wad kind of falling and that's right behind right. your pattern, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Well, no. And I've been hit too. one time. Somebody one time somebody turned around and took a shot right over my head and I felt the wad in my chest. And I was just kind of like, uh, like because it, it, it was a little nerve wracking. But they use uh, where we work. They use fiber wads instead of plastic wads. So they're a little bit heavier. And so I think that that played a component in how she got hit. But um, yeah, it, you know, the, it it was like I turn around and one of my coworkers is just like she's been hit, and I'm like, you mean like shot, hit, or like I I don't see any blood, like what's going on? And but yeah. like this this girl's sitting there and she's bawling, like she's not faking it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so you know there there were there were a few times, and then obviously you know every now and then there's somebody who has an unruly dog or something and somebody gets bit and that sort of stuff. And, and a lot of our clients were a little bit older. And so we had AEDs and all of the trucks and that sort of thing as well, just in case somebody ended up having a heart attack in the field. Luckily it never happened, but we, you know, we had to have an emergency plan for that sort yeah. of thing. If something like that happens, where's the helicopter going to come in that, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So.
0: Because it does happen. You know, you get yeah. this guy, he's a desk jockey, he's in his 60s, he gets yep. out hunting, even though it's just kind of walking in the park, and right, done it in a while, got off an airplane maybe because he flew in, dehydrated, kaplunk. It yeah, could, yeah. It could be dehydration, it could be a heart attack, it could be a stroke, any kind of a medical emergency, and right. you're not exactly across the street from an ER. You've got to have right. like that. That's why... There's always, you know, on military planes, there's always, a, they call them a flight surgeon. It's kind of a general yep. practitioner-surgeon hybrid because if somebody in the plane has a heart attack and it happens again, then yep. you, you got, I don't care how quick you divert, you got a problem. Yep, absolutely. You know? And I think, I think this is why I always tell people do not build your bug out bag for going into the wilderness and pretending to play Red Dawn. However, right. going into the wilderness with a few extra things like a tent is a great way mm-hmm. to test your bug out bag because it will not be easy jump in the car and run a seven 11 and pick up more batteries or right. something like that. So it makes, not only does it, when something isn't there and you wish it was kind of highlight that it also just makes you think, right? I mean, when when I was a kid, we used to hunt deer, pheasant, squirrel, small game, all of that. And we always were fairly well prepared when we went out into the woods. But we were always pretty close to home. When we went mm-hmm. and, and hunted for bear, we went, we call it in Pennsylvania, Up County, which just meant you went north of the county you're in. Uh, right. But we're pretty far out in the middle of nowhere in a place called Potter County. Um, and... You know, being a kid, I didn't really think this way, but I remember my uncle and all and his friends as we were getting ready to go, it was a whole different level of what we took with us on our body when we went into the mountains, because it was just a lot bigger of a deal of something went wrong. Right. And I think that anything that puts you into that situation, assuming you don't go into it blind and stupid and get lucky yeah. and come out with nothing going wrong where you think, Oh, it's just a, like, if you, you take it seriously, It makes you a better preparedness minded individual.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you know, one and I I hadn't really thought about this until just now. But like another thing that it sort of affected my prepping, just doing that job was living in a camper for three months at a time. Right. Um, Because we you know, we sort of had it at the time when I first started that job, we were still living down in Boise. And now we're up in the mountains and, and if things go wrong, like I'm not necessarily even thinking about bugging out, I'm thinking about bugging in a heck of a lot more, but we had a pretty nice camper and sort of in the back of my mind, it was like, if things went really weird, we might use this. If we needed to bug out, like this would be our shelter. And so living in that camper for three months out of year for, a couple of years was it gave us a lot of perspective on like how to actually do that and how to do that with a couple of kids and your wife and your dogs and like how effective it actually is and how effective it actually is not because like long-term it's not a very good plan. <laughs> like it, it it might, it might work for a little while if things got really weird, but um I I would I would not want to be thinking about it as a long term situation. That actually was one of the things, you know, when when COVID first hit, you know, I, I was listening to your show and I had already been kind of thinking that I wanted us to get out of Boise, which isn't exactly a flashpoint city. No, but. Is there 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 is a lot more of a I mean the Boise mayor is a communist I'm I'm just gonna flat out say it like yeah. there there is a lot of the liberal woke mindset that has kind of got into Ada County and so I was kind of already thinking like I wanted us to get out of the area um, and yeah, then I don't care COVID.
0: what state you're in cities are liberal factories yeah they absolutely liberals. they they churn them out chunk chunk I don't care if it's Texas, Idaho, I don't yeah. care. What. I also think there's something that happens with smaller cities surrounded by rural areas like Boise. Is mm-hmm. that when you get out in the country, you end up with a different kind of thug than you yeah. end up with in the city, more of like in Appalachia, your meth heads and things like yeah. that. And there're a different kind of trouble. And I think yeah. sometimes in these smaller cities, especially when there's no big cities around them, you get kind of a beltway of that kind of like a hybrid thugism where you've mm-hmm. got kind of the city thug and the rural thug overlapped and it can be yep. its own unique kind of problem if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, with that story that I mentioned earlier, um yeah, we've we've seen a little bit of that here in our own community and you know, I've I've been thinking a little bit about that that Jason Aldean song Try That in a Small Town and Yeah. Um you know i like i appreciate the sentiment that he's writing that song from but the truth is uh here in idaho like there are elements of some of this stuff going on in small towns that people are just kind of like shrugging and being a little bit complacent over yeah. and um you know so i like elements of of sort of the woke mind virus are i think affecting everywhere and i think part of it's the internet but um it's, I think that you know,
0: the small town thing is like, you d- like so many things. It depends. What small town? Right. Yeah. What situation? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Is it absolutely. a small town that's thriving and healthy? Or yeah. is it like so many of our small towns in America in decline? Right? right. Any group of society starts to go into decline. All the problems with it come out. In the cities, the problem is, like you said, with the woke mind virus. Now you've got the the problems coming out. And instead of like, oh, look at the cockroach, smash it. Then you get mm-hmm. this whole group of people like protecting the cockroach. Right. Right. Like, that, that, right. They, you know, it's, a, it's some of these people right now that are out protesting for Palestine, like queers for Palestine. Sure. I got nothing against somebody being gay. But that sure. person might as well be holding up a sign that says chickens for KFC. Right. right. Absolutely. Like, you don't understand at all what you're asking for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, not to offend you or anything, but kind of like you being a compassionate artist minded person working in a prison, you're right. going to make mistakes, but at least there's some people around you go, Hey, text, stand up for that. You'll yeah. crack your skull open or right. you where these people have no idea what they're doing.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where just as, I don't know. But the last three years have just it, it seems like every year there's something, you know, one one year it's covid. The next year it's vaccines. The next year it's Ukraine. And now here we're sitting here having to sort out what to think and what to believe and what information to parse through when it comes to Israel. And, yeah, I'll I'll be honest. Fred, I've been listening to your show since 2011 or okay. so and um got like got pretty into prepping i i actually went to emt school the year that you did the whole save our skills thing that, that that was my daughter was born and i was like you know what i'm gonna acquire a skill and so i went to emt school and that was that was part of like my response to that and we started growing a garden and then when we moved back to Idaho um having two kids and working full time at the prison like I got a little bit complacent for a few years there in terms of prepping and was sort of like uh you know something might get kind of weird but you know I mean even even the Trump years like elements of the economy and stuff were like doing well enough that there was a part of me that it was just like I don't know like what could go wrong? Like this actually seems well, I'll like tell you, things are pretty good.
0: Killed the gun shows. Sure. When Obama right. was president, we have huge gun shows in Texas. I mean, like two, three acres under a roof of guns. And yeah. When we went to a gun show during the Obama administration, there were signs up: buy this Barrett before Obama gets it, and it right. was like a a state fair. Feeling like you could feel energy, yeah. and it was you had to like wind your way through. Me and a buddy went to one in January, the year the first year of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. It was like a funeral, <laughs> it was like a funeral. I was like, oh, it's okay now. The R's ran is here, guns forever, and like right. all the urgency and all the excitement was just gone. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that we do have ebb and flow on our. Uh, and guns are only one piece of this, obviously, but we right. have been flow right. on our, on our urgency based on larger global politics. But, you know, if you were hanging out in Israel two months ago, you probably felt pretty safe. Right. Right. Yeah. And then overnight, you know, and yep. that's not taking a position. That's just reality. That's yeah. Reality. No. Things turn on a dime from safe to dangerous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, I you know I don't want to go too deep into it, but there's like even some of the stuff that I was saying before about complacency. Um, I, I've heard a lot of theories and a lot of speculation about you know they maybe let this happen, uh, akin to what some folks think about like nine eleven and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and kind of leaving that aside for a minute, there is a part of me that it's like, gosh, these. I mean, they came from air, land, and sea. I don't yeah. think anybody necessarily saw the paraglider thing coming. Um, I, I would I would imagine that some level of complacency was a part of how that thing went as wrong as it did.
0: Yeah, and it's um, like to let it happen or made it happen or whatever in any of these situations. When you're there on the street and you're the one getting shot at or yes. a building falling on you or whatever it is, it doesn't matter at that point. Yeah. Not yeah. dying. Staying alive and helping the people that are left and right of you, that's it. You can We can talk about that later. Right. You know, I think right. there's a difference in, well, how this really happen in, oh, shit, it's happening around me right now.
1: Right. Absolutely. And, and yeah, there's, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that something like that is going to happen here in the U.S. or, or whatever. I'm not going like, to make conspiratorial. It. But I, I mean, it I think will.
0: it might not look like that, I, but some shit. Right will go down that will be really bad in the next 24 months somewhere. And I don't even think that I don't have to be Jaxter Domus or Spirco Domus to make that prediction. That is just look back in time and you will see that every so often some like if you were hanging out in Kenosha, Wisconsin before that whole thing with Kyle Rittenhouse and those riots took place there. I've been to Kenosha many years ago, kind of like a small town city, like we were talking about earlier you know, there's places you don't want to walk or whatever, but overall you're feeling pretty good. Next thing you know, freaking buildings are on
1: fire. Like, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, um, I, I, I think generally where I was going was just sort of back to the complacency thing. Like, um, there's, you know, in, in 2019, like I was sitting there thinking to a degree, like what could go wrong? Like, yeah, and and the economy was so good before COVID hit that I I didn't think there was any chance that Trump wouldn't have got elected, and I I I think if COVID hadn't happened, uh, probably he would have been elected, and the economy would have continued in the direction that it did. But it didn't. That's not what happened. And so I would just encourage people, you know, don't be complacent. Like you may think, you know, try that in a small town. Our town is pretty small, and and we're in a safe place, but. Um, Don't allow that to lull yourself into complacency Um, because these things, it seems like it's not just like if things go wrong. It it seems like when so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with the not if when I've, I've said that over and over again, right down to you dying because we're we're all in, you know, we all have a terminal illness called life. I had a guy, I recently said that episode, and dude chopped up in the comments and said, life's not a terminal disease. It's not an illness. And he went on this soliloquy about how life is, you know, whatever. I said, tell me one person that got out of it alive. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm a big believer in the fatalism of it's not if, but when, you know, we had in the title of this called shouldering the weight. That's what was on your, uh, your application Mm -hmm. to be on the show maybe i should have started with this but as we're about to wrap up what does that actually mean to you shouldering the weight i I love that
1: terminology. um you know to me it means at at least taking part of your life even if it's not full-time um and spending some time whether it's in service to your country or service to your state or service to your community um you know personally i'm i'm pretty big on on service to your local community i think that that is something that's sort of undervalued and something that we tend to think not less of but we we think of it less right um i i i think that setting that example for our kids is hugely important whether we end up in some sort of a anarchist type situation someday or or if if we continue having elements of the monster government putting its boot on our necks here and there i i think that there is something important to understanding like what it actually takes to hold up your community and i think that there are certain jobs you know and it's it's it doesn't have to be fire or Corrections or anything like that. I mean, it, it, to to a degree, just like power workers and garbage truck drivers and and people who are um, working. And, you know, I always tell my kids, like, go work in a hospital, go work on an ambulance, put put on a pair of fire boots in some way, whether it's on an aircraft carrier or on a hotshot crew. Um, do do something that gives you that perspective on lifting up the weight of our existence on this planet and helps your neighbors and helps your community, so that's ultimately that's that's what it means to me and teaching our kids the importance of that
0: now, after all of this work, you've also decided that uh you're gonna take some time off and make a new record and go back to your musical roots. What led to that, and can you tell us anything about it?
1: Well, so a few years ago, I had an opportunity to produce an album for a friend of mine, uh, Stephanie Lover. Um, she, she does children's music and is a music therapist. And um, I helped her produce that record, and I was volunteering at the fire department. And it seemed like every day there would be – I'd be working on the record. A 911 call would come in. I drop what I'm doing, I would go and end up transporting somebody and being up in a rural area. uh, If we have to do a transport, we're driving an hour and a half away from town. And so, you know, you figure an hour on scene and an hour and a half transport down and an hour and a half transport back home. And then you're cleaning up your rig and putting everything back together once you get to the station. And next thing you know, the day is The day is mostly gone and, um, I, I just sort of hit a point where while I was working on that product and thinking about trying to put my next album together, that it was like, if, if I'm going to do this, I need to, I, I need to like buckle down and focus on it and it alone for a while. And so currently I'm, I'm, on inactive status with the fire department. I'm, I am going to be going back. Um, but currently I'm, I'm trying to get this next record done and, and focusing on recording music again. So.
0: Well, I think that's really cool. And I do have your, uh, your Instagram, your website. And I think there was one other, uh, social media. Oh, Twitter. X, yeah. Whatever the hell it is now. I've got yeah, all of those. Right. I right, got. You know, every article I read that that talks about quoting somebody posting to Twitter now, it always says X formerly Twitter. This means your rebranding has not worked, Elon. Right. 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 This yeah, your, your rebranding has failed. You will be shitter forever. The bird will always be in <laughs> his mind. It'll be 15 years from now, and some kid will be going, "Why do you guys call it Twitter? Because we do." Um, right like, anyway, uh I do have all of that in the show notes for people to check out. Uh the website is mountainmandolin.band. Uh people yep. should definitely check that out. And I appreciate you being with us today for a different angle of discussion on this than we've had in the past. It was really great.
1: Cool. Well, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. And um yeah, check out my music. I put out a couple of new singles here recently. Um one is a song called We Never Do You Any Harm that's on iTunes and Spotify that is sort of about the masks and the vaccines a little bit. And uh, another song that I actually just wrote last week, it kind of came to me in a dream. And I sort of scrambled and did a recording of that and put it up on iTunes as well called Ishmael. And it's it's sort of uh, more of a biblical perspective type song on on some of this stuff that's going on over there right now. So, um, anyway, but yeah, check out, check out my music. I've been writing, you know, so I've I've been sort of a musical dissident in a lot of my writing for most of my musical career. And, um, I, I do think folks in this audience would appreciate it. So
0: like I said, very cool, man. And I will have links to everything in the show notes. Thank you for being with us today, Jack. All right. Thanks. All right, guys, uh, time to wrap up. The audio did get a little choppy there at the end, uh, but we made it through. Uh, really do want you to go and check out Jay's website. Again, it's mountainmandolin.band. You don't have to write that down if you're in a car or something. Just go by today's episode, 3397, at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Pull up today's show notes and everything that we talk about, including the item of the day that we're about to talk about, uh, will be right there for you. Today's item of the day is Matisse Gallego 10 Seafood Variety 10 Pack. It's 10 different canned or tinned fishes. And I won't say much about this today because I, I have a video that's almost 20 minutes long with the review of this product that goes into a lot of things about how where tinned fish came from, how it all started. It goes back to, believe it or not, Napoleon Bonaparte. And so I'll be brief on it. Uh, there are 10 different varieties in this pack. They come out to about 6 bucks a can. Uh, I will just say that tin fish belong in the pantry of every prepper uh, because what you have is a storage uh, component that is protein and fat, both of which are difficult and tend to be expensive to store as preppers. They are also not limited to the 99-cent seed oil-infused garbage low-end crap at the bottom shelf at a Dollar General store that people think of when they think of sardines and mackerel and uh, mussels and oysters and stuff like that. There's some really amazing stuff. Matisse is in Spain. Uh, all their seafood is harvested in Spain. Their olive oil is Spanish olive oil. It's top end. In Europe in particular, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Italy, etc. cetera, uh, tin seafood is not looked at the way that it is in the United States. It's considered gourmet because these are top-quality uh, fish that are generally canned within hours of being harvested there's a lot of variety in this uh including the octopus which if you have never tried it this would be a good way because you're only one can out of the ten is there uh, anyway i go through a lot of it uh in the video that goes in part of the review but let me just say a couple things that are in this pack that are among my favorites are one at the bottom there you see the wild sardines with a little pepper on it if you can't read that on the screen it says with piri piri peppers in olive oil This is, if you like spicy, this is money. I don't think they're that hot. My grandson thought his face was going to explode. So, you know, that's, again, you can try one and done and and decide if you want to order more. But that's why I think this is good. Another one, wild cockles also there at the bottom. Cockles are like a little clam. Compared to most of the clams that you'll try, they're really sweet and tender. They're good on a toothpick right out of the can or a bunch of different ways. Again, I give a bunch of different serving uh, suggestions. Also in the write-up today, there are two books they're available both in hard copy and Kindle format. One is called "Tin to Table by Anna Herzl. And the other is called The Magic of 10 Fish by Chris McDade. They're both great. I would say the second one by Chris McDade, The Magic of 10 Fish, is a little bit better of a book overall. It gives a lot of things you can do with the tin fish. It also gives you a lot of things that you can do with stuff that goes with the tin fish, like fried capers and all kinds of cool stuff that you can make that would go with other things. That uh, would maximize your prepper pantry and would maximize your garden produce. So definitely consider checking these out again. This is a longer than typical post. I give a lot of examples of how to use the stuff. And I think this is something as a prepper that you need to be aware of. Again, this goes back. It has its its whole origin in the concept of preparedness, kind of from what we're talking about today. Like when you were in an army marching into no man's land back in the 18, early 1800s, you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. You had to pillage whatever you were going to get. And you, if you're going to war with a country, you might find out there wasn't nothing left to pillage when you got there. Being able to take something small like that, provide it to your soldiers and get them out to battle and back and keep them fed, an army marches on its stomach, in the words of Napoleon himself. And uh, so we can learn from that historical concept and bring that into our modern kitchens. And remember, you can find that and everything I've ever reviewed at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And no matter what you buy, while you're there, you help support the show and the work that we do. With that, I will sign off. Tomorrow, I think, will be an expert council Q&A. Penzamo and Chris from the Ron Paul team gets his audio over to me. If he gets it to me soon, it will definitely be an expert council show tomorrow. I think Friday will be out uh, on the four-day work week. The Friday flashbacks are coming, but probably not this week. I've done the legwork on them, but I haven't gotten them all completely templatized and ready to go. Uh, next week, then we do have TSP twenty-three workshop. That means rewinds all week, but they will be badass, awesome rewinds. You can count on that. And then. We'll be back in a couple weeks of regularly scheduled programming, for real this time, until we come up to our break for Thanksgiving as we head into the holidays. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay.